Hi, everyone. Many, many apologies for being gone for so long once again. We won't waste your time with that saga, so let's jump right in. The last Hit Parade episode we did back on November 7th ended with the murder of Indian Al Mataranjali in February of 1974. Johnny Matarano would later claim responsibility for that hit as part of his plea agreement. He placed Sal Sperlinga as his driver. Stevie Flemmy had his own version of events and claimed that Howie Winter was present also. Since four murderers weren't enough, Whitey Bulger would also later be charged with Al's murder. And as we said in that episode, Stevie also claimed to have been on the lam in Canada, not returning to Boston until the first week of May in 1974. So either he was lying or he had the magic ability to be in two places at once. Never a shortage of confessors. Or false confessors. 1974 nearly tied the then-homicide record set in the hub the year prior. Over 130 murders were committed in 1974, with one day in mid-January seeing three slayings in less than 16 hours. And the year didn't end much differently, with two men being shot five minutes apart. One of those two men being the son of Alan Fiddler, who survived his wounds. The elder Fiddler had claimed to have been shot by McLaughlin crew member Connie Hughes back in 53. John Fiddler survived his attack, but his brother wasn't so lucky. But we'll get to that later. I assume we're going to go in chronological order? I think that makes the most sense. We'll also be discussing some non-mob-related hits today and the death of Ben Tilly, Raymond Patriarca, and Jack Kelly's former partner in crime. And we'll touch on the slaying of a Boston Police Department officer who was killed while working a security detail at the Purity Supreme in Jamaica Plain. Now, Nina, who is the first victim we're going to cover today? On March 8th, a taxi driver named Michael Milia, who was originally from East Boston but had relocated to Somerville with his wife and kids, was shot once in the back of the head while parked on Border Street in East Boston. Nothing was taken from Milia or the cab. His stepfather, Anthony Sorrow, said that Michael had been driving a taxi for five years when he was killed. Sorrow said that he and his wife had warned Michael about the dangers of driving a cab. I wonder if Anthony Sorrow was related to the Anthony Sorrow who was killed in 1995 with Robert Luisi Sr. and the two others at the 99 restaurants. Considering how intertwined everything was in Boston, it wouldn't surprise me. Well, I think the more important relationship there was that Anthony Sorrow, the victim, was Bobby Luisi Sr.'s nephew. And of course, all roads in the Boston mob world lead back to Vinnie Teresa. But you guys will have to wait till season three to hear about that. In this case, the more important link was that Milia was a cousin of sorts to Paul LaMonica. And Robert LaMonica. Paul LaMonica was believed to have, ki- to have killed Crazy Clifford, which we'll get to shortly. Robert LaMonica was believed to have been killed by Whitey Bulger in 1980, but Frederick Weichel was wrongfully convicted of Robert's murder. Weichel was just released from prison last year. No one was ever charged with Milia's slaying. Well, Milia's murder had to have been connected with what was happening at the time. The following month, Ben Tilly was killed in a car crash on April 16th. If you want to hear more about Ben's early days, listen to our previous episodes, Disorganized Crime and Revenge by Robbery. Tilly took Arthur Bucky Barrett under his wing and showed him the ropes, helping him to hone his skills as a burglar. Barrett's biggest heist was rumored to be $400,000 worth of stamps from the Cardinal Spellman Museum at Regis College. Let's talk about the stamps before we move on. In March of 1971, Jack Molesworth and company was robbed, and in March of 73, the college was hit. Some of the stamps stolen were autographed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
Six months after Tilly's death, Arthur Barrett, Freddie Chiampa, Tilly's brother James, and others were arrested along with the stamps being recovered. It would be another seven months before they would be arraigned on those charges. Barrett was sentenced to six months in November of 76. Chiampa had other issues, including an indictment for robbing diamonds from good old Bigelow Canard. One other received six months, and the rest seemed to have escaped conviction. Do you think Ben Tilly was involved in the thefts? He was probably at least involved in the 1971 theft. Stamps and coins were a big thing back then. Even I had a stamp and coin collection. You kept the stamps in that strange sort of wax paper and the coins in little plastic sleeves. Dad would drag me to a shop on Bromfield Street in Boston that was owned by some spectacle-wearing old man. Thinking back on that, I have to assume that my much-beloved coins and stamps were as hot as Mississippi in the middle of July. Well, what happened to them? Dad was broke one day and they disappeared, a recurring theme throughout my childhood. Okay, enough of your childhood. Let's get back on track. On May 24th, Patrolman Donald Brown was working a security detail at the Purity Supreme Grocery Store in Roslindale. At around 10 p.m., Brown escorted the store manager to the do the night deposit when they were approached by four robbers. The manager was forced to lie face down on the ground. Patrolman Brown was shot under his right arm with a 30 caliber rifle bullet and died en route to the hospital. He never even had a chance to draw his weapon. Brown was 61 years old and less than six months away from retirement. Robert Linen was arrested and charged with the slaying of Brown in June of that year and held on $400,000 bail. He also faced charges of rape, kidnapping, and armed robbery in another case. In the end, he was convicted on all counts. Okay, back to East Boston. On July 12th, 19-year-old Salvatore Consolo was found dead in Boston Harbor. The East Boston native was believed to have been involved in narcotics. I tried to find other connections but couldn't, and nothing ever came of case. Nobody was ever charged. Just one week later, on July 19th, Freeman Punchy, or as Lara called him earlier, Crazy Clifford, was killed. I want to note that Clifford was listed as one of the VA robbery suspects. That same list also contained the names of men later linked to the Gardner Museum heist nearly 25 years later. That list included recently named persons of interest, the late James Marks and Richard Magna, who we covered in our episode, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. And the long-standing ones such as Dad and Mello Merlino. All that has to wait until next season. Okay, back to Clifford. A little bit about Clifford's backstory. In 1963, he testified that he was riding in a car with Bernard Wagner and Wagner's brother-in-law, Robert Adams, when Rocco Bolero cut them off. Later that day, a shootout took place at Wagner's home. Rocco had been cohabitating with Wagner's wife while he was in the can. To hear more about that, listen to The Defense Never Rests. The following year, in September of 64, Clifford was arrested along with two other men for stealing bonds from the home of John Cashman. Do you know if John was related to George Cashman from the Teamsters Local 25 that Richie was linked to? Maybe an uncle or something? I'm not sure, but the feds tried to say that Dad had fabricated a story about the feds' investigation during Senator Dan Burton's hearing in, I believe, 2002. But in 2003, Cashman did plead guilty to those conspiracy charges. All right, let's not get sidetracked. Okay, as Lara mentioned before, Clifford was on the VA suspect list and an informant told Special Agent Denny Condon that Punchy Clifford was crazy and that it was possible that Clifford had been a participant in the VA robbery, thus our nickname for him, Crazy Clifford. Of course, this sounds like a false lead and I assume Denny felt the same way because supposedly he never passed on that tidbit to the Treasury Department, who was also investigating the VA robbery. Denny got a slap on the wrist when that failure was discovered. 
I always assumed that it was Richie on one of his misdirection campaigns who dropped that little bit of bad intel. All the more reason why Condon chose not to share that info. Clifford was arrested again for a housebreak in October of 1972. Another case of he would have been better off in jail as Clifford met his end less than two years later after being stabbed and shot by Paul LaMonica at Barry's American house where they both worked. LaMonica turned himself into the cops later that same day. But he apparently was never brought to trial. My own theory on this, and it's only a theory, is that Crazy Clifford killed the taxi driver, Michael Milia, and the Sorrow family killed Clifford in revenge, knowing the law would do nothing about either murder. Just a few days later, a man and a woman were shot to death while sitting in a South Boston tavern named Diamond Jim's that was located at 354 West Broadway. Gerald Russell and Geraldine Bunnell were hit by a sniper rifle while sipping their drinks. The bartender and six other patrons who were present at the time of the shooting had bounced before the police arrived. Another man in the bar at the time, Joseph Kanata, was hit in the shoulder and was found wandering the streets before being taken to the Boston City Hospital, where he was listed in stable condition. Of course, the rifle and the timing makes me think of Stevie Flemmy. Russell had a minor record, but supposedly no OC connections. He was estranged from his wife. Bonnell was a factory worker with a squeaky clean background. Joseph Canada was originally from Jamaica Plain and was living in Dorchester at the time of the shooting. It was actually the taxi driver's report to the police about Canada that led them to finding Russell and Bonnell in the bar room. Later that night, three unarmed men were arrested nearby with a rifle in their car. I couldn't find anything off about Canada. No one was ever charged with the shootings. Yeah, I wonder if it was Stevie and Johnny who got picked up and then cut loose. Wouldn't Possible. surprise me. Possible. Next on our list is another case that was recently in the news, the Lady of the Dunes. She was only the she was only identified this past year. Her name was Ruth Marie Terry of Whitewell, Tennessee. On July 26, 1974, her body was discovered in the Race Point Dunes in Provincetown, Massachusetts. A girl was chasing her dog and came up on the body. For years, there were rumors that Whitey Bulger may have may have been her killer, but if you're going the Winter Hill route, it sounds more like a piece of phlegmy handiwork to me. That being said, last year, the state police announced that her deceased husband, Guy Rockwell Muldaven, was a suspect. And with all of the insanity surrounding Muldaven, I think we should dedicate next week's episode to the Lady in the Dunes. It's out of our purview, but it would be very interesting. Let's do it. Okay, deal. Like the lady in the dunes, the next murder also doesn't quite fit our regular content. Edwin Edwards, who was slain on September 24th. Edwards owned a novelty shop on Washington Street in Brighton. He was found in the back of his shop with a wire around his neck, with his hands and feet bound in what was said to be gangland style. He appears to have not had a criminal record and no one was ever arrested for his murder. Carl George Smith wasn't slain in Massachusetts, but we have to include him here. For our listeners who were with us throughout season one, this, his name should be familiar. In May of 55, Whitey Bulger had robbed the Industrial National Bank in Pawtucket along with Carl and Dottie Barshard's brother-in-law, Ronnie Dermody. Whitey later told the FBI that he had been introduced to Smith by another unnamed ex-con and had been talked into becoming a driver for Smith. Whitey claimed that when he learned that this deal concerned a bank robbery, he wanted to back out. He further claimed that he was even more afraid when he learned he had to go into the bank since two members of Smith's crew had backed out at the last minute. He stated that the first bank robbery was successful and afterwards he was in on three more bank robberies with Smith. 
Yeah, okay, Whitey was an unwilling participant. Smith was arrested in January of 1956 for another robbery in Indiana that he had allegedly committed with his brother-in-law about two weeks after the Hammond job. Whitey believed that Smith gave him up to the feds, and that's how he ended up getting arrested by H. Paul Rico in the bar in Revere, a more than well-known story. Like Whitey, Smith also landed in Alcatraz. At some point, he was moved to the federal pen in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he was murdered on November 18, 1974. According to his death certificate, the main cause of death was massive hemorrhage from multiple stab wounds he had received from a knife fight. He died 25 minutes after being attacked. And over 40 years later, Whitey would meet a similar end in prison. Speaking of Whitey, the next victim, James F. Souza, was also believed to have been killed because of Whitey. According to Johnny Moderano's 2011 testimony, Souza was a low-ranking member of the Winter Hill crew. He and two others botched a robbery while trying to sell fake gold to a dentist who then pulled a shotgun on them. In a panic, Souza grabbed the dentist kid and fled. The kid got away and Souza was picked up by the cops. I could never find anything in the newspapers about this, but according to Moderano, Whitey and Stevie Flemmy were afraid Sousa would flip, so they decided to kill him. Moderano said that Flemmy lured Sousa to the garage where Moderano killed him at Whitey's behest. But his testimony wasn't enough to convict Whitey. Remember that it was Anthony, oh man, I'm going to botch Chula? this. Chula. Yeah. Testimony from 1995 that first brought the events around Sousa's slaying to light. I want to know what kind of dentist is toting a shotgun and buying stolen gold off of that bunch. I just don't, none of that story makes any sense. Anyhow, we'll get more into Chiula's story in a few weeks when we cover the race fixing case against Howie Winter. Oh, speaking of Howie, did I tell you the estimated timeline on receiving Howie's FBI file? No. How many months? Months? You mean years? Nearly six and a half years? Well, look how long I've been waiting for the remainder of Dad's file. It's been actually almost 23 months so far. Let's not get sidetracked by me griping about the feds. At the beginning of the episode, Nina mentioned that one of Alan's suitcase fiddler's sons was murdered. On November 3rd, Jeffrey Fiddler was shot twice in the back at the intersection of Water and Wapping Streets in Charlestown. No one was ever charged with his murder. Another victim believed to have been killed by or at Whitey's request was Paul McGonigal. He was last seen on November 20th, 1974. His remains have never been positively identified. We're going to wait to tell Paul's story until season three. I agree that we should focus on McGonagall's story when we cover Whitey's demise. Now for a break from the boys of Winter Hill. The next murder victim was that of Joe Schiavone on November 27th. There was a longstanding bad blood between Joe and Louis Minocchio. A decade before Joe's slaying, an attempt had been made on his life. He discovered a car bomb under the hood of his car. At the time, Schiavone recounted that he noticed that his car motor was skipping, so he took it into the mechanic to get it checked out. When the mechanic popped the hood, he found an eight-inch stick of dynamite with a cap and two wires coming out of it. One wire was hooked up to a spark plug and the other to the alternator bracket to ground it. The mechanic told Schiavone to call the cops, but instead he placed a phone call to his business partner, Willie Maffeo. All right, and don't crucify us for mispronouncing Maffeo's last name. I give anybody a chance to try pronouncing all the Russian names that we're normally reading. Okay, a few days later, Schiavone's father-in-law showed up at the Coinomatic complaining about the bombing attempt. Raymond Patriarchus said he was confident that no one in Providence would have done it since he'd been banned. He had banned the use of bombs except during labor disputes. 
hey, say what you want about Raymond. At least he had rules, although they clearly were not followed. And he had as many words of wisdom. Well, there would be plenty more Raymondisms throughout this season. Raymond also speculated that since Schiavone was back on the street and Shylocking, it was probably one of the people he was trying to collect from. And it was his opinion that the culprit was either a sneak or a nut. He promised Schiavone's father-in-law that it wasn't anyone from Connecticut either, though how he would know that, I do not know. This was the same day the hard car, hot car racket ring with John Barbieri and Joe Patriarca came to light. Barbieri, Willie's brother-in-law, would be found dead just four short months later. Then on November 30th, 1967, Louis Minocchio was shot in the neck during a gun battle on Atwell's Ave. Louis was hospitalized, but he was good as new in a few days. His alleged attacker was Joe Schiavone, who was picked up and charged with assault with intent to kill and illegal possession of a weapon. Schiavone was cleared of the charges early the following year. But that wasn't the end of the Monacchio Schiavone feud. On April 2nd, 1968, at around 3 in the morning, the Providence PD received a phone call from someone at Robert Almonte's club at 153 Atwell's Ave. Louis Monacchio, Rudy Schiara, Johnny Rossi, Dickie Calais, and others were armed and waiting at Almonte's for Joe Schiavone to walk by so they could kill him. The cops raided Almonte's 30 minutes later and found the weapons as well as gambling paraphernalia. Louis and the other men were arrested and charged with illegal possession of weapons. Almonte was charged with possessing gambling paraphernalia, but all the charges were eventually dropped. Joe Schiavone, Guido de Arezzo, and RI, Rhode Island Kennel Club President Louis Iacobucci were charged on February 27, 1970 with conspiring to kill Raymond Patriarca. Louis Minocchio, and Dickie Collette. Let's fast forward to 1974. On November 27th, Joe was shot to death while sitting in his car that was parked in the driveway of his home in Cranston, Rhode Island. Four boys witnessed the slaying. They told the police that a man driving a blue van pulled up to Joe's vehicle and opened fire. I have my theory or fantasy that Louis Minocchio took a break from one of his skiing trips while on the land to take him out. Yeah, but the van and the way it was done makes me think of J.R. Russo. But anyway, eventually Gerald Tillinghast, Ralph DeMassey, and one of other would be charged in Schiavone's slaying. However, the charges were dis dismissed against all of them. We'll have more to come about Tillinghast this season. No one else was ever charged for the slaying of Joe Schiavone. I'm going to add another name to the list that doesn't quite fit our usual subjects. Holyoke native attorney Harvey St. Jean, who was slain gangland style in Miami on December 11th. He had been shot twice behind the left ear while sitting in his car. A meter maid was ticketing the locked vehicle when she noticed that the dead 58-year-old was slumped against the passenger side window. His wallet was missing and the pockets of his suit had been turned inside out. St. Jean was a nationally known defense lawyer. Amongst his clients was High Gordon, an infamous fence who was sentenced to 10 years earlier in 1974. Also, Candace Mossier, the socialite who was accused of killing her millionaire husband with the help of her nephew by marriage and lover, Melvin Powers. During his time in the Army, St. Jean served as an MP and was busy raiding opium dens in Iran during World War II. Why do you say these things? Hey, I'm only telling you what I found. He was also infiltrating Polish refugee camps. Amongst his other underworld clients was Murph the Serf, who was charged with stealing $400,000 worth of gems from the Museum of Natural History in 1964. 
A year later, it was revealed during a congressional hearing that the IRS might have information that would lead authorities to St. Jean's murderer. In December of 76, it was revealed that a Cuban narco claimed that St. Jean had cheated him out of 50 grand. The authorities even enlisted the help of a psychic who said that the killer had a tattoo on his wrist. But the case still remains unsolved. I could ask you again, why do you say these things? But I won't. On December 23rd, Paul Raymond and Anthony Gioia, I'm going to say, I know I say I'm saying that definitely wrong, were shot dead outside of my place on Commercial Street. Angelo Gioia, Anthony's brother, was also shot but survived. The brothers owned and operated the bar. There was an altercation between them and Paul Raymond. When they tried to eject Raymond, shots were fired, leaving the one Gioia brother dead, one wounded, and the former boxer Raymond also dead. It does not appear to have been mob-related. A week later, on December 29th, a fireman from Charlestown named John Lynch was shot dead, and just a few minutes later, the other fiddler boy... ...was shot. Sorry, let me start over. Yep. Okay. A week later, on December 29th, a fireman from Charlestown named John Lynch was shot dead, and a few months later, the other fiddler boy was shot. Lynch, fiddler, and his wife, Helen, who had dinner together at the Blue Mirror Cafe before they dropped Lynch off in the housing projects. Lynch was killed in a matter of minutes, and fiddler was shot less than five minutes after that as he sat in his parked car with his wife. The following month, Fiddler was sentenced to 10 to 20 years at Walpole for armed robbery. We didn't cover that robbery in our last episode. According to the news reports, Fiddler and the two other men had robbed the Harvard Trust Company at Tech Square in October of 73. The robbery was filmed by a hidden camera that showed Fiddler leap over the counter and clean the place of 28 grand. His partners, who had been standing guard, took off without him after he had passed the loot off to them. The Fiddlers didn't seem to be too popular with anybody. As for the assailants of Lynch and Fiddler, no one was ever charged. Next week, we're going off track and dedicating an episode to the Lady of the Dunes, as we had mentioned to you guys earlier. The focus of that episode will be her husband, his background, and other crimes he was suspected of. Then the following week, we'll be covering the murders of 1975. Guys, I am so sorry that we have been gone for forever, but thank you for listening and sticking with us. Bye. Bye.